saying. Seriously, though, I am so happy to see you guys. I, I really did. I really did miss you very much. So uh, thought about you, prayed for you. I'm glad to be back. It's so nice to be back. And, you know, it's funny. We live in a place, especially during the summer, and we all say, oh, my gosh, it's so hot here. And I, this is the best place in the whole world to live, I'm telling you. So anyway, nice to be back with everybody. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for joining us on site. Thank you for joining us online. I'm very excited this morning, partially because I have finally overcome jet lag, but also because we are starting a new three-part series this morning that we are calling Killing It. Killing It. What is that about? Well, the series is about the one thing inside of us that keeps us from celebrating the success of other people. It's the one thing inside of us that keeps us from being the first person to apologize. Or it's the thing that causes us to keep on arguing our point even after we realize that we don't have a very good point to make. It's the thing that keeps us from admitting that we've lost when it's clear to everybody else that we've lost or from admitting that we need help, or from admitting that we don't really know what we're talking about or what we're doing most of the time. It's a thing that keeps us from being honest with ourselves and with other people. It keeps us from learning new things because we want the people around us to think that we already know everything. It's a thing that causes us to feel good when we see other people failing. It's a thing that causes us to cheat before we'll allow ourselves to lose. It's a thing that causes us to lie about our past or causes us to have have to have the final word in everything and it causes us to buy things to impress people who aren't even paying any attention to us at all. What's the thing? What's the thing that we're going to kill? It's pride. It's pride. For the next three weeks, we're going to talk about killing our pride. Now, before I go on, I want you to hear this. I want to be really, like, clear about this. I am not talking about the pride that we think of when we say, I'm really proud of my kids. Or, I'm proud of my niece. I'm proud of my nephew. Or, even, I'm proud of the work that I do. Or, I'm proud of my organization. Or, I'm proud of my church community, or I'm proud of my accomplishments. I'm not talking about the pride that inspires people, oftentimes inspires people to greatness. I am talking about that dark and destructive thing inside of us about which C.S. Lewis said, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. Don't you love the way he wrote? It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. That's the kind of pride we're going to be talking about. Because that kind of pride is in you. And that kind of pride is in me. And we've all been victims of that kind of pride in our families, in our relationships, at work, other places. But not only have we been victims, we've all been guilty of unleashing it on someone else. And the problem with pride 
is that we can always see pride in other people, but it's almost impossible to see in the mirror. That means that there are likely people in our lives that are victims of our pride. And because we associate pride with overt arrogance and we don't ever think of ourselves as overtly arrogant, we think, well, then I don't have a pride problem. But pride is insidious. Though we don't know it's there, it's still there. And it's ugly. And it lives in all of us, every one of us. So that's what we're going to do for the next three weeks. We are going to learn how to kill it. And that's why we're calling the series Killing It. So let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us all together today. Father, thank you for this community you're building. Thank you for this ecclesia. Father, thank you for the hearts and and minds that have joined us here this morning as we are going to study a little bit about how you would have us do away with this pride. God, keep our hearts and minds open today as we hear from your word. We love you, God. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's start off with a few words about pride. The first thing I want you to know is this. Pride diminishes us. Now, that might come as a surprise because most people believe that pride makes us bigger or makes us more grand than we really are. But that's not true. Pride doesn't do that. Pride makes us smaller. Pride makes us worse than we really are. Pride diminishes our capacity to admit what we need to admit, and it diminishes our capacity to acknowledge the things that we need to acknowledge, and it also diminishes our capacity to apologize for the things we need to apologize. Pride is a hidden, toxic form of emotionalism. And it's an emotionalism that keeps us from saying the things we need to say and doing the things we need to do. Pride makes us smaller, and that's why we've got to kill it. Pride also diminishes our capacity to say the things that need to be said. See, for some of us, there are people who love us, and they're just dying for us to say one positive word to them or to give them one positive affirmation. But pride robs us of our ability, or at least our our inclination, to do that, to provide somebody with even one simple compliment. Pride stops us from telling friends, or telling a loved one, or telling a coworker, or even telling a stranger, wow, you're awesome, wow, that's amazing. Or, Or, wow, you're really a beautiful person. Or, I love your vibe. Or, I love your enthusiasm. Now, if you're not in the habit of pouring out blessings into the lives of the people who surround you on a daily basis, people you know, people you don't know, people in your orbit, I'd like to suggest that you're not in that habit because your pride is holding you back. When your pride is engaged, your heart is suppressed. When your pride is active, you're just not able to say what needs to be said to other people. And also, you're incapable of hearing what you need to hear from other people. Whenever anyone is seeking encouragement or love, your pride blocks out their signals. Pride is powerful. Pride diminishes our ability to do what we know deep down we need to do. That's why it makes us smaller. 
not bigger. When pride controls your life, your life is diminished. And pride does control all our lives to one extent or another. Pride diminishes our capacity to love other people. And pride also diminishes our capacity to receive love. See, pride crowds other people out. When you're full of you, there's no room for anybody else. And the thing that's so insidious is that you don't even know it when it's happening. But I tell you this, everyone around you knows it when it's happening. See, pride deprioritizes everybody else in the room. But that's not all. Pride, your pride, my pride, has the potential to crowd God out of your life as well. In Psalm 10, King David wrote these words about pride. Here's what he said, Psalm 10 for. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him, does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. See, prideful people don't seek out God. Prideful people seek out what is best for themselves, and it crowds God out in the process. At the extreme of pride, there's an assumption that I'm the one who's at the center of my own universe. And because pride has the potential to crowd God out, it's possible that, if you're here today even as a skeptic, it might be your pride, not your intellect, but your pride that's keeping you from God. And if that describes you, the real issue isn't how smart you are, it's how prideful you are. Pride is a prison. It's a prison that shuts us in and shuts God and other people out. But interestingly, as pervasive as pride is, as widespread as pride is, no one would say, you know what? I'd like to have more pride. I'd like to develop such a strong case of pride that no one feels close to me and I don't feel close to anybody else either. That's my goal. Nobody would say that. Nobody would say, I want to have such a strong sense of pride that my family and my friends will always wonder whether I love them. And then, when they gather at my funeral, they'll all say, did you know? I didn't know. Did anybody know? Did anyone feel loved by him? Did anyone feel loved by her? That's my goal. Nobody would say that. That's not your goal. But that is what results from unchecked pride. That is what happens when you hand pride control of your life and control of your heart. And we all, all of us, have the extraordinary potential to do that because we can't see pride in ourselves. We can't see pride in the mirror, and we're not open to anybody pointing at our pride for us. Now, this brings us to the part that you might not have thought about. Listen to this. An invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to unfollow pride. An invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to unfollow pride. See, Jesus taught and Jesus modeled a radically liberating version of humility. And that radically liberating version of humility is what will help you and what will help me escape the death grip that pride has on our lives. It's the thing that's going to help you take the remote control out of pride's hand 
and begin to remove, begin to excise pride from your life. But I'm telling you, it is not easy. It will not be easy. And here's what I mean. It's safe to say that at least we all now know, at least in principle, that our pride is a problem. But we don't typically wield our pride because of our knowledge or lack of knowledge. We wield our pride because of our emotions. Wielding pride is a very emotional thing to do. Pride is deeply connected to our emotions. As a result, excising pride from our lives will not only require diligence, but it will require a bit of self-awareness, and we're not really very good at self-awareness. But it will require much more self-awareness than it will knowledge. Because when we're being controlled by our pride, it's not our intellect or knowledge that keeps us from saying the things we need to say or asking the things we need to ask or listening when we need to listen or apologizing when we need to apologize. Intellectually, we know that. We know all those things. But we all have deep-seated emotions by which pride holds us hostage. Pride uses our emotions against us. And only Jesus' radical approach to humility can release us from the stranglehold that pride has on us. And here's why I say that. You see, when Jesus arrived on the planet, he stepped into a world that was different than our world. That world was all about a religious and political pecking order. There were powerful people. And the powerful people did great things, and the powerful people who did great things believed that that earned them God's favor, or the favor of their gods. And that made them prideful, and that made them arrogant. And as for the rest of the people, well, the rest of the people, they were just relegated to living meaningless meaningless lives, and that's kind of what they thought about themselves. The majority of the people in the world believed that sort of thing. They believed powerful people, important, the rest of us, not important. And you know something? A lot of people still believe that today. A lot of the reason we have this social media infatuation is because we look at these powerful people and we think, wow, they must be powerful. They must be important. We need to follow them. We need to be associated with them. But Jesus came and he redefined what greatness meant. And he redefined greatness not as doing things that, one could use to puff oneself up, to to puff oneself up with pride, but rather Jesus redefined greatness as striving passionately and lovingly to do things for other people. Jesus essentially said, let me redefine greatness for you. Greatness is defined by how well you serve other people, not by how well you are served. Now, if you're around for our follow series, which we ended just before I took off on vacation, you already know this. But people in Jesus' day did not know this. So it was absolutely revolutionary when they heard about it. Jesus came along and said, you know what? I don't want you to be prideful. I am not calling you to be your own press agent. I am not calling you to promote yourself. I am not calling you to be your own publicist. I'm telling you that being meek is where it's at. Remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the meek, or they will inherit the earth. Now, let's pause here for a minute. Because at first blush, this is a confusing statement. I'm sure you've read it before. If you've been in church for a day and a half, you've heard the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard blessed are the meek, and you go, that's confusing. 
Being meek does not sound very appealing, does it? Why is that? Well, that's because the modern definition of meek isn't anything that anybody we know would aspire to. Here's what I mean. Dictionary.com describes meekness as, listen to the description, docile, overly compliant, spiritless, yielding, tame. Nobody wants to be described that way. Merriam-Webster defines meekness as mild, deficient in courage, submissive, and weak. Who wants to be meek? But it's important to note that these modern-day definitions of meekness have a very different meaning from the Greek words that were used in the New Testament that are translated as meek in our English New Testament. Now, in the common Greek or the Koine Greek, that's what that language was called, one word that's used is the word proutes. Proutes, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right, but proutes connotes an absence of self-pride. Being meek is being without self-pride to the point of a lack of self-concern. Huh. That sounds like selfless. That sounds like self-sacrificing. I think we're getting somewhere. The poor and the oppressed, that's how they were often described, proutes. But not because they were perennially frightened or perennially intimidated, but because they exhibited a humility for their own position, which allowed them to place a greater emphasis on serving other people. Another Greek word used in the New Testament for meek is the word praus, which is also connected to proutes. But praus is this. It connotes a decided strength of disciplined calmness. I heard it described one time as it's a strength, but it's a strength that's under control. I always think about it when, you're, when you have a really well-trained Rottweiler and you're walking your Rottweiler down the street and another dog comes by and your Rottweiler, you hear that little in his throat, but it doesn't move. It doesn't go after the other dog. It just looks at you like, Dad, Mom, I'm cool, right? Right. That's strength under control. And that's a leadership virtue for Jesus' followers. And that's one of the leadership virtues that we're supposed to demonstrate, this this strength under control, which gives us this benevolent compassion for anybody who is socially, economically, intellectually subordinate. This means that according to Jesus, the meek are the people that are willing to lean into and not away from the strong. They don't cower, they stand up. The meek are the people who are willing to serve people in ways that would make other people uncomfortable. Can we get an amen? Amen. Remember Jesus' most famous act of meekness? Remember, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, what did he do? He washed the disciples' feet. Now, does that fit into the definition now to the description of meekness or what? Listen, he was their rabbi. He was their leader. He was their teacher. And yet, he healed people. He raised the dead. He touched lepers. And then with those same hands, he washed the dirty, gross, stinky feet of the disciples. It's so easy to miss this. It's so easy not to think about it. It's easy to miss the emotion of that scene. It's easy to miss the smell of that scene. Do you do that when you read the Bible? You go, I wonder what it smelled like. 
I know it sounds weird, but you know, in the Old Testament, when, when they would do sacrifices, animal sacrifices at the temple, and they would say a fragrant aroma rose up to God, you know what I think? Barbecue, that's exactly right, yeah. There's no better fragrant aroma out there. It's easy to miss that significance. Jesus was the greatest among them, and he washed their feet, the lowest part of their body. And with that one act, Jesus said, take that pride. And then he said to his followers, you've heard me talk about it. And now that you've seen me do it, I want you to go and do likewise. And if you do, it'll break the power of pride in you. Jesus introduced his followers to a liberating approach to humility that has the power for every person on the planet to break through the emotional layers that hold us back, that imprison us, that keep us locked in and keep God and others locked out. Now, Matthew's gospel clarifies this approach. Once again, Jesus said this. This is really cool. In Matthew chapter 18 Verse 15, and Matthew 18 is known as the reconciliation passage. And here's what Jesus says about resolving disputes between people. If your brother or sister, the word, the word is uh, brother or sister, sins against you, go to them and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. See, by commanding this, Jesus was, was suggesting they take a step that no one had ever heard of before. It was, it was a, a step to initiate reconciliation. This was not a thing before he said that. In Jesus' day, everyone acted pretty much the same way that we're inclined to act when somebody wrongs us. In Jesus' day, people would say, I wasn't wrong. They were wrong. I'm going to wait for them to call me. You don't have to raise your hands, but you know you've said it. It's, it's that thing that makes us say, I need to apologize to them. They need to apologize to me. Waiting for them to move in our direction. Before we'll take a step in theirs is reflective of our very nature, our very human nature. It's reflective of that pride that lives in us. But Jesus killed that model. And Jesus initiated reconciliation. And here's why that's significant. Even though Jesus was always right, and Jesus was most certainly wronged, it was Jesus who initiated reconciliation. If you just follow Jesus in that one way alone, it has the power to break through the pride that keeps you locked in and keeps the people you love the most locked out. Pride says, wait. Jesus says, initiate. Pride says, hmm, I have to think about this first. Or pride, trying to hide itself as even Christian virtue, might even say, I need to pray about this first. When it comes to reconciliation, it's important for us to be self-aware enough to know when it's prayer that's needed or it's pride that's interceded. By his example, Jesus was saying to us, look, I'm guiltless. In fact, I'm the only one who is guiltless, and I'm always going to initiate. So don't you think that if I, the perfect one, initiate, you should too? For following Jesus, whether or not they reciprocate, we need to initiate. Amen. Amen.
She is not on the payroll. I love, I love you, man. This is awesome. That is some unparalleled relationship mending humility, isn't it? Always initiate. Jesus said, that's what I want you to do. Think about it. If this was our approach to relationships, there's almost nothing that couldn't be mended. There's almost no relationship that couldn't be healed. And if we implement this simple practice, do you know what it's going to do? It's going to make our kids better. It's going to make our parents better. It's going to make our friends better. It's going to make the people with whom we work better. And it's going to make us better. You know why? Because if we can do that, we'll have broken through the layers of emotion that keep us from asking what needs to be asked and from saying what needs to be said and from apologizing to and approaching the people that need to be apologized to or approached. So 20 years after Jesus, the Apostle Paul writes about this. Now, Paul didn't meet know Jesus except that he met him on the road to Damascus. But he wasn't one of the disciples. He didn't follow him around for three years. But Paul was friends with John, and John knew Jesus. And Paul was friends with Peter, and Peter knew Jesus. And both John and Peter experienced Jesus' entire earthly ministry and shared it with Paul. And in writing to the Jesus followers, to the brand new believers, to the Greek and Roman Christians living in Philippi, here's what Paul said. And it's, I crammed it up here on the screen. It's going to be a little bit small, but I want to get everything up there. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. We're going to talk about this because just imagine if we did this. What what if we did this in our relationships with each other? What if we did this in our relationships with the people we live with or the people we know or the people we work with have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, have the same approach to life that Jesus had? And then he talked about Jesus. He said, Jesus, you know, Jesus, the guy who, who made himself nothing, who took on the nature of a servant. It's right there. Jesus said, how can I serve you? Do you think you could pull this off? Let me give you a couple of examples. So guys, married guys, your wife is angry with you. And here's what you say. Honey, how can I serve you. Ladies, your husband really offends you, really offends you. Honey, how can I serve you? And though we'd more likely think, serve them? (laughs) They deserve punishment, not serving. And though we'd all probably agree, at least quietly, into ourselves, that's not how things are in the real world. Pastors always say things like that. If we're going to follow Jesus, we need to change our way of looking at things. We need to constantly be asking, how can I serve others? Okay, but, okay, fine, pastor, you're supposed to say things like this. What if they're your enemies? Yeah, Jesus addressed that one too. Love them. Love your enemies. Pray for those people who are coming after you. Pray for them. We need to be constantly asking, how can I serve my enemies as Jesus has served me? 
If you think about that for a second, you can't help but go, that is radical. Who does that? And that's precisely the point. It's a radical approach to humility that it will take to kill that pride. Let's go back to Paul's. Paul said, Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Put another way. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus volunteered. Nobody forced him. He volunteered. Jesus chose to get what he didn't deserve. Jesus chose not to get what he was entitled to. Jesus said, in essence, I deserve it, but I'm not going to take it. I'm entitled to it, but I'm not going to opt for it. Being found in the appearance of a man, he, here's our word, humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus made a conscious decision to place himself under those who didn't deserve for him to place himself under them. In other words, Jesus chose to put you and Jesus chose to put me above himself. Just how far above himself? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, not only to death, but to death on a cross. And he's not asking you to do that. All he's asking you to do is apologize. All he wants you to do is write a letter. All he wants you to do is just stop arguing. All he wants you to do is say, yes, honey. All he wants you to do is go up to your son and say, buddy, I'm proud of you. All he wants you to do is go up to your daughter and say, sweetie, I love you. All he wants you to do is go to your, go to your child's game, go to your child's recital, go to your child's concert. Jesus died for you. And all he wants you to do is, is go to your child's event and encourage them. And if you think that's too big of an ask, I think you've missed the point. You're not understanding what your Savior did for you. How far did Jesus go? He, go, he, he went to death. And not just any death, not death of old age, but death on a cross. This kind of humility will absolutely break the power of pride in your life. And you'll never miss that pride once you've broken it and gotten rid of it. And Jesus did all of this. And then he looked at us and he said, follow me. And this instruction that he gave us sets us up for an internal conflict. That internal conflict between our pride, with all the emotional baggage that goes along with pride and keeps us separated from God, that eternal conflict between our pride and then Jesus' calling to put others above ourselves. And so the instruction kind of works this way. Our emotions, influenced by our pride, tell us, hey, go find a reason to not apologize. Because whatever happened didn't feel very good, whatever it is. Don't apologize because that made me hurt. That hurt my feelings. Which causes our brain to go, oh, who cool, because I didn't want to apologize anyway. Which makes our emotions respond, thanks, brain. Now I feel justified in not apologizing. And so the cycle continues. But Jesus comes along and he says, hey, emotions, hey, brain, give me the remote. I'm not going to let pride control my life. Pride doesn't have my best interests at heart. Pride is a liar. Do you want pride to continue to drive the things that are happening in your marriage? Do you want pride to continue to drive the things that are happening in your relationships with your friends, with your kids, with your neighbors, with your coworkers? No? 
pride doesn't have to be your master. Jesus wants us to jettison pride and embrace humility, embrace radical humility. And if you're a Jesus follower, you have no excuse not to do this. See, we sing praise songs, we sing worship songs, and every time we do it, every time we pray, every time we say, thank you, Jesus, every time we say, God, help me, we are reflecting a relationship with God that's based on extraordinary humility. We are recognizing there is a bigger being than us. There is a person who's in charge of it all. We're reflecting that relationship with God, and it's one into which we've been invited. But we're invited to have extraordinary humility. So we're going to end today with three questions. And here's the first one. How does pride manifest itself? How does pride show up in your life? Now, if you don't know the answer to this question, I promise you somebody close to you does. So if this is a mystery to you, just ask them. But let me make a suggestion before you ask them. Make sure you're in the right headspace before you ask somebody to point out the pride in your life. Because when you hear the answer, it's not going to feel good. It's going to feel like a criticism. So, so don't ask this question before you're heading off on summer vacation, okay? Don't do it. Don't ask this question before a nice evening out. Trust me on this one. Now, of course, when I say things like that, I know it is highly unlikely that very many of us are going to really ask this question. Because it's a weird question. It's an awkward question. It's a question most people won't like to ask. But it's important to know the answer to that question. So to point you in the right direction, I want to give you a small glimpse of one way that pride used to manifest itself in me. Beth reminded me of this situation a couple weeks ago before we went away. So set a little groundwork for you. I'd been a fitness buff, a fitness aficionado, if you will, for a long time. I started weight training when I was 15. I've been doing it consistently ever since. That's a long time. And along the way, I've been training, I've been reading about training, I've been studying training, I've been experimenting with training. It's been a lot of years, and as a result, I know some stuff. When you do something a lot, you just know a lot about it. And also, I'm I'm a preacher, and I'm a teacher, so I like to tell people the things I know. And as a result, it was my practice to volunteer little gems from my vast store of wisdom to anybody in the gym who seemed new, or at least a bit lost, telling them what to do. I did this much to my two sons' chagrin. They're like, Dad, don't. Don't say anything. But I would walk up to people in the gym and just give them nice, unsolicited advice. Now, what was causing me to do that? That was my pride. I felt compelled to make sure that everybody knew exactly how much of an expert I thought I was. So my sons called me out on it, and they were right. And I don't do it anymore. It's not that I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> I always want to do it. I just don't do it. I've, I've killed it, or, or at least I've wounded it. I've wounded that part of my pride, and I'm happier for it. And by the way, so is my family. Now, this is a related one. As I've gotten older... Maybe you guys will relate. Some of you will relate. I'm also finding out that I want to share my opinions about all the other things I've learned with anybody with an earshot. 
I can't tell you how many times I've been standing in line at Publix or Starbucks or at the mall or wherever, and the stranger standing behind me offers up their opinion out loud about whatever it is they think they know better than everybody else. And I feel this pull, this incredibly powerful pull to let them know my opinion about the same topic. That's a byproduct of pride too. And I'm working on killing it. Eh, I'm getting there. Because walking around like a know-it-all is not a good look. And it has the potential to undo all the things that God is doing through me. As a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a pastor, as a neighbor. I don't want to let my pride control me like that. So I pay attention to it. I watch it very closely. And while you probably won't ask your loved ones to call out your pride, sooner or later, you've got to answer the question, how does pride have the potential to manifest itself in your life? You have to know the answer to that. You've got to call out that pride so the pride doesn't shut you in and shut other people out. Okay, second question. And this one's a bit tougher. What does pride masquerade as in you? So you won't recognize it as pride, but what is it? Is it confidence? Now, confidence in and of itself is not a bad thing, of course. But is your confidence camouflaging your pride? Maybe it's knowledge. Do you use your knowledge, maybe your knowledge about the way the world really works, or about the way things really work, or about what people really want? Do you use that knowledge to hide your pride? Here's one of my favorites, sarcasm. I don't know. I think I have a PhD in sarcasm. I picked it up along the way. Yeah. Do you use sarcasm to hide your pride? I do. How about your commitment to excellence? I'm not prideful. I just know what the good things are. Right? You ever been at a place and they're serving wine and they bring out the bottle of wine and you know it's a good bottle because they just twisted off the screw cap? And the sommelier is telling you, oh, and this is wonderful and fruity and hints of vanilla. And you're like, ha, I know better. Is that pride? Is that pride? Is that your commitment to excellence? See, all these things are wonderful. They really are. And, and, and they can all be virtues, but they can also hide your pride from your attention. So whatever your particular weakness is, when you spot it and you call it out, well, that's progress. You're making progress. And finally, how much longer are you going to let that pride reign in your life? I mean, how much more do you want to do this? And this question is mostly rhetorical, but it's something to think about. How much longer do you plan to let pride hold that remote control to your life? You're going to let it go another week, another month, another year? You're going to let it go until you die, never getting rid of it? Wouldn't you instead like to kill that pride and walk away from it and never be bound by it? Wouldn't you like to recognize it so that every time it begins to draw you in, you go, no, not today, pride. You're not the boss of me, like kids like to say. If you want to begin to end pride's reign, how about trying something like this? Whenever you feel that old pride welling up inside you, just tell it, pride, uh-uh. I'm not going to let you be a problem anymore. I'm going to walk right over there right now and apologize. Because when you apologize, pride takes a hit. Whenever you're feeling insecure or you're feeling under attack and that feeling of pride wells up in you and makes you want to sound aggressive or defensive, what if you say, no, I'm going to compliment them on what a good job they did, even though they got the job I wanted. 
And everyone's thinking I'm jealous. No, no. Pride, you don't control me anymore. And pride, I'll tell you what else I'm going to do. I'm going to get help. I'm going to get help for my addiction. I'm going to get help with my drinking problem. I'm going to find somebody to help me work through the bad habits I know that I have. I'm going I'm to get some counseling. I'm going to see the doctor. I'm going to open up to my buddy. I'm going to open up to a friend. I'm going to open up to my spouse. I'm going to tell him I'm struggling. Pride, I am tired of you jacking me around and keeping me down. I'm done with you, Pride. You're just making me worse. Pride, I'm not going to let you keep me from God anymore. Pride, we are through. What do you think? Can you do it? Are you ready to break up with pride? Are you ready to move on? Are you ready to break through those emotions? Are you ready to do the thing that nobody thinks you can do? Are you ready to do the thing that you don't even think you can do? Here's one more question, then I'm done. If not, why not? Why would you continue to embrace and follow something that has the potential to kill you instead of following someone who died for you? Why would you continue to hand the remote control to something that has the potential to kill everything that's valuable to you instead of choosing to surrender your life to someone who chose to die for you? Jesus has the power to set you free. And you can go to him by acknowledging, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. God, I ask for your forgiveness without reservation for all of my sins, even the sins I don't realize I'm committing. I believe that you died for all of them, all of my sins, and then you rose from the dead. So I'm going to turn away from those things, and I'm going to give you my heart. I'm going to give you my life. I want to trust you. I want to follow you forever as my Lord and Savior. When are you going to do that and step into that freedom? So for the next few weeks, this is what we're going to be talking about. And I'm excited about next week's message because we're going to look at a story from the Old Testament that I'm going to guess most of you have never even heard of. It's, it's really an extraordinary illustration of this principle. And, and what to do when you feel that thing welling up in you that has the potential to kill you. Because instead, we need to kill it. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us home safely. Thank you for this community you're building. Thank you for just the love that we have for each other. Thank you for the encouragement we provide for each other. And thank you for this time when we can come together and work on following you with all our hearts. So God, as we consider killing our pride, allow us to notice it and then get rid of it as we draw closer and closer to you. God, we thank you for this time. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people agreed and said, amen.